the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated briefly. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe again that the American people are as a whole capable of self-control and of learning by their mistakes. Welcome to Serve to Lead. I'm your host, James Strzok. As we get started, may I ask a favor? Please help us reach a growing audience by giving us a high rating on iTunes. With us today is a highly respected American public intellectual, Michael Lind. Michael Lind is a professor of practice at the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. A prolific author with a talent for graceful and erudite expression, he's recently released a provocative and influential book, The New Class War, Saving Democracy from the Managerial Elite. The book has elicited substantial comment and extensive reviews in major publications. Michael Lind, congratulations. It's a delight to welcome you today. Thank you for having me. Michael Lind, please tell us a little bit about your latest book and why you wrote it and why it matters now. Well, I wrote The New Class War to uh, try to explore the context of the populist revolts that are taking place in different forms in the otherwise fairly similar uh, modern democracies, both in North America and Western Europe. And, and I think uh, Europe and America at this point are close enough politically and socially and economically that you can make some generalizations. So, for example, the Brexit vote to leave the European Union in uh, Britain uh, in 2016, the election of Donald Trump, the rise of populist parties in Italy and Germany and France and elsewhere. I argue that all of these are part of a larger phenomenon, which is a counter-reaction, a counter-revolution um, by large segments, Not by no means the, all of them, but part of the working class uh, in these countries against what I call the a revolution from above um, in, in the name of a system of progressive neoliberalism by what I described following the mid-20th century, and for James Burnham as the managerial elite, a very broad category, which includes uh, college-educated professionals as well as uh, and, and, and civil servants as well as private sector executives. <clears throat> Excuse me. Would that also include like lawyers, doctors, architects, journalists, and so on? Yes, because if you look at the so-called service economy in the United States, it's actually very bifurcated. You have low-end uh, services, so-called high-touch uh, jobs, like uh, healthcare workers, home health aides, for example. But, but the well-paid, well-remunerated professional services do not exist in a vacuum apart from private industry and, and what we think of as the corporate world in general. So, for example, the really well-paying legal jobs, you know, are, are, tend to be corporate lawyers, as well as lawyers for individuals with a high net worth. Uh, much of the insurance and uh, banking industry is geared towards uh, helping national and multinational corporations. Uh, and, and this is reflected in the different views that different parts of the population have of the global economy, because if you work for a multinational corporation, or even if you work indirectly for it, as a lawyer or banker or accountant, then you benefit from uh, 
uh, the access to foreign markets, foreign labor, uh, the, the growth of this enterprise worldwide. If you're uh, part of the old-fashioned uh, factory working class and your factory is shut down and replaced by uh, offshore foreign production, then you suffer. So what I try to argue in the new class war is that these divisions in society do not require us to think one side in the debate is good and the other side is evil, uh, or that one side is rational and the other is irrational. That is, when, when people disagree about trade or immigration or other policies, uh, from their own perspective, they may have perfectly rational uh, economic and, and social reasons for their positions, and we should try to understand all of the, the reasons. Are professors and journalists part of this group as well? Well, well professor, journalists, and I say this, I was formerly a, uh, a Washington editor of Harper's, a New Yorker staff writer, and a, a New Republic senior editor. Journalists, in my experience, are among the most elite group in, in the country, uh, partly because the pay is so low. You tend to get rich kids taking these jobs and unpaid internships, which really ought to be outlawed. Uh, because they, they are essentially an aristocratic institution that benefits uh, the children of the wealthy, uh, tend to be the stepping stones to journalism. Uh, yeah, academics, even, even uh, you know, academics at, at second or third tier schools are, are paid much more than uh, ordinary working class people with uh, high school educations only. So part of the backlash against my book has been saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm a professor, I'm a journalist, you know, I'm, I'm a small-town doctor. How can I be part of the elite? But if you're part of the 30% in the United States that has a uh, bachelor's degree or the even smaller number, it's about 10% of the American population has a postgraduate degree, like an uh, MBA or JD or PhD, then I'm sorry, you're, you're part of the national elite. You're not a billionaire, but you're, you're really definitely part of a social elite and this 10% group of people with postgraduate degrees to which I belong, uh, we control half of the wealth in the United States. The remaining half is divided between the super rich, who indeed are very wealthy, and uh, the bottom 90% of the population. So I think it, it's not enough to say it's the 99% against the 1%. Those of us in the 10% have to acknowledge that we're part of the elite too. Now, some people might say in response that, yes, Professor Lin, there is a group of this nature, but we're in America. This is a meritocracy. These are people who have worked hard and they've gone to schools and gotten extra, extra education. The whole country helps support that through various subsidies. How do you respond? Well, there is a, a degree of meritocracy, and it's greater today. Uh, certainly than it was in the past uh, when we had segregation and when you had discrimination against Jews and Catholics and uh, other non-Protestant white, white groups in, in private uh, university missions, for example. But, but the, the fact is, and I lay the data out in my book, uh, your, successes of, uh, your chances of successfully completing college are much greater if one or both parents was college educated than if they weren't. Uh, as I point out in the book, the top scoring math students from the poorest uh, quintiles in, in uh, the U.S. Uh, are less likely to graduate from a university than the poorly scoring students from high affluent backgrounds. So 
I, I think it's kind of, I'm, I'm not denying that you have upwardly mobile people, uh, but to a certain degree, the status of being a college-educated professional uh, is, is inherited in the United States, and the same is true in uh, Western Europe, as I point out. And it's very interesting that the recent scandals where people of tremendous privilege and wealth were even bending that system to get additional breaks for their children that nobody else gets. How did you think that well, that's right, right? ought to be thought about? But, well, the whole system was corrupt even long uh, before that. You have uh, so-called legacy preferences where you, you get a boost in admissions if you're applying to an elite school, if your parent went to that school. And if you think about it, that's just naked aristocracy. One of the things that came up from a reviewer, because your book is so well written and tightly argued that it's going to ruffle some feathers, and doubtless you intended that. Uh, one reviewer, who I believe was from one of the great universities, criticized you for calling out community activists as condescending, and you were comparing them to 19th century missionaries, I think. And it was striking to me that this person, who was very much a part of what you're talking about, truly didn't seem to recognize why people would think this group is often condescending. Well, well, that's right. The point I made in the book was, and I draw on research by the Harvard social scientist Beta Scotchpole and others, if you look at civic organizations and nonprofits in the 1950s and 1960s, they were very uh, much local grassroots type organizations, the JCs or the Shriners or United Way, even when they were national, they were federations of local clubs. And most of their members, uh, there was a diversity of classes among uh, the members in, in the organization. This is not my original research. I'm relying on a great body of research. What has happened in the last 50 years is that as a there's been a shift from these grassroots volunteer organizations to uh, uh, NGOs, non-governmental organizations or nonprofits, which are funded uh, by either individual rich people or by foundations like the Ford and Rockefeller Foundation. Uh, on the right, it's the Koch, found, found, uh, Koch Brothers uh, 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 foundations. Uh, I, I co-founded a leading NGO, uh, New America, back in 1999. It's still going strong, but it is part of the new model. Uh, where the money comes from grants from which people were rolling foundations. And there's nothing wrong with this, but the problem arises when you get described uh, as a community activist, if you're someone who moves, let's say from San Francisco to Chicago and you've been there a year, uh, and then you raise money from the Florida Rockefeller Foundation or the Gates Foundation to do essentially what the Gates Foundation or Florida Rockefeller wants you to do, and you really don't have deep roots in the community. That was the only point I was making. Mm -hmm. It's often something to observe that people in the group that you described so well often seem to be, if I might say, self-righteous, or at the least they don't recognize that they're asserting their own self-interest at times. And so, for example, it was quite interesting when the recent tax law changes began to limit the tax deductions for upper income people for state and local taxes and for home mortgages, which was really an upper 
and upper middle class subsidy that they rose up as one for that. But you really don't see them acknowledging that they're expressing their self-interest often at the expense of others. Is that a fair observation or do you think it's off point? Yes, and I think I, I think that's fair. And I also think they're quite honest in not seeing themselves as part of a social elite, even if they were born to fairly affluent, you know, college educated parents. They really believe in their own minds that if they had been born to, you know, uh, poor working class parents, they would have ended up at the same place, just because of their, their you know, innate talent. Uh, and it seems like a paradox that, for most of history, the the dominant class, whatever it was, an aristocracy or warlords or whatever, uh, they 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 acknowledged that they were the ruling class and they justified it because of God or nature, or or uh, Sometimes you got a, a sense, uh, the idea of noblesse oblige, that is, you were born into the uh, elite, but you had a special obligation, which the peasants and commoners did not share, of repaying your privilege by service. Now, this was often hypocritical, but at least there was that idea. But as long as we have this myth of a perfect meritocracy, then people who objectively are a quasi-aristocratic group can, can persuade themselves, not just others, that they don't belong to an elite. They're just, you know, particularly talented individuals, and they don't owe anything more to society than the people below them. And I think uh, you know, that's not to justify old-fashioned aristocracy, but when you have a ruling class that denies that it is a ruling class, that's going to cause problems. Understanding that there's no direct analog in time and place, some of what you say brings to mind the British aristocracy in the early 20th century, before the Second World War and the changes that came. And one aspect of many in that group was an alienation of the most privileged that included not only a lack of patriotism and a discomfort with it, particularly after the First World War, but at times an anti-patriotism, as George Orwell observed in some quarters. Do you sense we have some of that too? Well, it, it's been consistent in every generation. Uh, the late Christopher Lash, a sociologist and historian, uh, was rather merciless in satirizing intellectuals, particularly on the left, who were you know, radically anti-patriotic and, and uh, revolutionary, who came you know, from, who had trust funds from their wealthy parents. So, so there's always been this case that you have uh, a lot of uh, well-heeled radicals uh, who can live in, you know, Greenwich Village or you know the left bank of the Seine, and plot a revolution, uh, and you know they do so in the name of the working class, but they don't necessarily belong to it, uh, and and that was true of the Marxist-Leninist revolutionaries and tyrants of the 20th century. Uh, Fidel Castro, uh, Mao Zedong, uh, Lenin all came from either uh, upper middle class or aristocratic families, and even Joseph Stalin uh, came from uh, a literate business uh, uh, background in, uh, uh, in Georgia, which, which made him part of the elite and illiterate society. Well, one of the aspects of this new class, this ruling class, if you will, as it arises in journalism and academe and related cultural institutions, 
is there are certain issues that they seem to resist even being discussed. Not that they necessarily want to make the argument at all. So, for example, illegal immigration is often not discussed directly at all. Uh, it's dismissed, as are other issues, as being outside the bounds of public discussion. They might say it's racist uh, on its face. Uh, there seems to be a great effort to control the national conversation at times, and it brings to mind the old notion that what cannot be discussed is often where the power is. So for another example, uh, in this whole public discussion in the presidential race about student loans, there seems to be almost no talk about the tremendous endowments accumulated by certain universities throughout this process and their tax advantaged, and they're left out Apparently, everybody's okay with that. So they just talk about getting more money and, and continuing this cycle. What do you think about that? Well, I think your observation is, is quite profound. Uh, the subject dearest to the heart of the elite that affect its own power and its own wealth uh, are ones that are not discussed. It's just not done. Uh, so, for example, uh, I've, I've spent some time in Mexico. You can read endless uh, sociological studies by Mexican academics and by academics from other countries about the poor and middle class in Mexico. I've never come across a study about the rich in Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> about how, you know, how do they get their money? How, you know, how do they know each other? How do they marry each other? Right? The same is true in this country. When I was at Harper's Magazine back in the 1990s, we ran a story uh, you know, by the late, uh, David Foster Wallace making fun of Midwesterners in a county fair, uh, and then it was discussed, well, let's send some of these other places, and I said, well, I've got an idea. Why don't we send them to uh, Newport, Rhode Island, or the Hamptons, <laughs> and they can make fun of the, the elite people there? Well, that didn't go anywhere. So, uh, so, so you're quite right. You can you know, tell what is important to a regime by what it does not allow to be discussed, and trade and immigration increasingly are being treated as taboos by our bipartisan establishment. If you go back to the 1990s, there was a vigorous debate about immigration. You had a lot of immigration restrictionists, including the late Barbara Jordan, uh, the first uh, black congresswoman from Texas, uh, and also who taught it where I teach now, the LBJ School of Public Affairs, was, was part of President Clinton's Commission on Immigration, and she recommended uh, cracking down on illegal immigration, on cutting legal immigration of unskilled workers in half. These policies are now treated as beyond the pale and not even subject to serious consideration, if not crypto-fascist, you know, by, by uh, mainstream opinion. Uh, there's been a big debate in this country for half a century, since the 70s, over, you know, uh, trade and its effect on manufacturing. And it used to be that uh, the Democrats were, were the most protectionist party. Uh, in, the, in the last, under the Clintons and Bushes, we've had this kind of bipartisan conventional wisdom that anyone who questions the benefits of globalization, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, are, are just beyond the pale. They're ignoramuses, you know, uh, they're dangerous people, and we're not going to even debate it. So I, I think we're in a very uh, troubling period where a lot of major issues are being censored. Uh, and it's not that. There, there's one side of the stories appearing in the press. It's that the debates are not being allowed at all. How do we get past that? 
Well, I, I think the way you usually get past it is uh, you, two things. One is you create a counter-establishment where if your group is frozen out of the mainstream the way, for example, a lot of progressives and, and social democrats were in the first half of the 20th century, the way the religious right was uh, after World War II, you create your own network of media, of institutions, of radio and TV shows, if, if you can do that. It would be online platforms now. The other is, inevitably, when you get this gap between what people are thinking and what they are allowed to say in public, you will get figures who are transgressive, like Donald Trump in the United States, like uh, Pepe Grillo in Italy, uh, who will just violate the taboos. Uh, and, all, and this is not necessarily a good thing. I'm not endorsing this. I'm just saying this is inevitable. That is, you will get public figures who just say what everyone else is thinking, but are, are not, but they're afraid to say, and they're just going to say it and blurt it out. And the problem is, those transgressive figures, you know, uh, you know, often tend to be demagogues rather than people who have, you know, carefully considered uh, what what uh, their their policies and and uh, their strategies are. But I, I think that's part of this backlash we're seeing, this populist backlash. It, it, it is not only against certain policies, but it's a backlash against uh, the pieties of establishment political correctness. It's very interesting in that regard that after being defeated by Donald Trump, who by any measure of his friends and foes was an unlikely person to become president of the United States, there seems to have been remarkably little reflection and adjustment by the Democratic Party. It seems to be in this campaign, and particularly as shown by the choice of the past vice president as the most likely nominee for president, that they want to do, in effect, a restoration. They think that something odd happened, but they weren't the problem at all. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think the restoration is the exact uh, analogy that is the working theory of establishment Democrats and some establishment Republicans is that Trump was simply a fluke. And uh, if things had gone somewhat differently, the Republican nominee would have been Jeb Bush and it would have been, you know, fairly familiar uh, Bushes versus, you know, Clintons in, in the 2016 election. And after an interregnum of four years, you can just go back to normal. Now, I obviously, you know, on the basis of my book, The New Class War, I think this is nonsense. Trump was part of this transatlantic phenomenon of populist rebellions. And even if Clinton had won in 2016, you know, this phenomenon would be manifesting itself in some form. But, but I, think, I think that actually is the, the view of most Democratic leaders, that they're not looking at this in terms of a global or transatlantic perspective. They're seeing uh, this uh, not as a repudiation of the bipartisan consensus on free trade and globalization from uh, 1989 up until 2016, that they're seeing Trump as just a fluke, and then you would have a restoration if all goes well in 2021. The journalist Thomas Frank, who wrote the book, What's the Matter with Kansas, has made the argument that the Democratic Party has absorbed the managerial class from the Republicans in the past years, and it's accelerated under Trump, and that he puts that as the source of a lot of the Democratic Party's problems today. How do you see it? 
Well, I, I agree with that. If you look at uh, the two parties, uh, they've essentially exchanged constituencies. The constituencies of the New Deal Democrats, from Roosevelt to Johnson, and even later, were uh, white Southerners, along with the white working class, uh, largely Catholic white working class, in the Northeast and the Midwest. Uh, that is now the base of the Republican Party. Uh, if you look at the uh, look at whites alone, if you factor out African Americans and Hispanics temporarily, and I'll get to them in a minute, uh, you, and you look only at white Democrats, their parents and grandparents uh, would, mostly would have been Republicans. Uh, if not Bush Republicans, then Rockefeller Republicans or John Lindsay Republicans. People remember the New York liberal Republican mayor in the 1960s. So, you know, when, even I, even uh, Obama, uh, if memory serves, said we're Eisenhower Democrats. Uh, and up until the 90s, most college professors, educated people, uh, people with college degrees voted Republican. It was kind of the business class, the country club. The, uh, the academically educated elite. That has changed now. In 2020, uh, the Democrats control most of the affluent districts in Congress, and uh, they get ever-increasing shares of the college-educated white vote while losing the high school-educated white vote. So if you think in terms of the uh, modern Democrats being the party of FDR and the modern Republicans being the party of you know Reagan or Eisenhower, I think you'll just be very confused. Do you think the country would have an opportunity to seriously disrupt the party system at some point? Is there any realistic way to break up the duopoly and all of its legal protections and regulatory protections and move toward a multi-party system? Or do you think that is either not possible or not worth doing? Well, I've been working on it for a generation. <laughs> Back in uh, 1992, uh, along with uh, Senator John Anderson of uh, Illinois, the uh, former Republican independent candidate for the presidency in 1980, and uh, Henry Hertzberg of The New Yorker, and uh, Rob Ritchie, uh, who is now its director, I co-founded uh, uh, Fair Vote, uh, which is uh, a, a leading organization that has fought for alternate electoral systems, uh, both ranked choice voting, where you rank candidates, more than two candidates, uh, and list your preferences. Uh, and the other system is proportional representation. And these two different electoral systems, I won't go into the details, but they're used in most modern democracies. And when you use them, then you get multi-party systems, which more or less accurately reflect the range of opinion within the electorate. Uh, we are stuck with a uh, uh, two-party system because we have the old 18th century British first-past-the-post system in which even if you only win 40% of the vote or 30% in a uh, three-way race, then you uh, win the entire seat, whether it's, it's the white, you know, your president, governor, uh, a representative, or senator. So, uh, so I'm... I guess I guess the quick answer without getting into the mechanics, and if you're interested in the mechanics, look up fair vote, one word, yes. uh, on, on the internet. Uh, until we change our electoral system, we're stuck with the two-party system, and, and activists should work within one of the two parties. And the reason is, under our plurality voting system, if you cast a vote for a third party or an independent candidate, you may 
accidentally hurt the party that you dislike the most and help the party that you hate the most. So in, in the first-past-the-post system that we have, third-party candidates tend to be spoilers. Uh, and it makes rational strategic sense to uh, to vote for one of the two parties. Yeah, I'm, look, I'm an independent because I understand the mechanics of this. In most of the United States, we don't even have a two-party system. In most cities and counties, there's one dominant party, and a Democrat or Republican is going to win every time. So in those one-party states and districts, if you're rational, you should vote in the uh, primary because the, the winner in the general the general election, we know who the winner is, is going to be in advance. It's the Democratic or Republican nominee because this is a, a one-party district or system or state in some cases. So, so I think people should vote strategically, and that means avoiding voting for third-party or independent candidates uh, because of the danger that you will hurt the mainstream candidates that you like the most. But it also means that if you live in a one-party uh, state or district, then in some cases, if the other party has no chance at all, then, then why not vote for the majority party, but try to use your your limited influence by voting in the primaries. <laughs> One of the things you talk about in this brilliant new book is about changes that could be made to move in the direction you would like to see things done. And you talk about these intermediate institutions that could be revived. Could you talk a little bit about that? And in particular, explain why you think that would be possible if it is today, and to what extent those kinds of institutions are, or relationships are relics of the industrial age? Well, if you look at the middle of the 20th century, uh, there, there were three kinds of intermediate institutions that were accountable to working class people in a way that that uh, has no equivalents today. One obviously was trade unions, which were important both in the U.S. and Western Europe. Another was churches and synagogues, which had much more social influence in the 1950s and 60s than they do now, mainly because the populations become more secular. And the third was local political organizations, you know, political machines, urban political machines in, in the north and uh, the big factory cities. And in the southern uh, small towns, you had the county courthouse gang, and all of these institutions, the trade unions and the uh, political machines, were often corrupt, but they did reflect the interests of their constituents, and who were mostly working class, in a way that arguably no national institutions do nowadays. And so as the unions and the churches and the, uh, the local political machines have, have faded away, there's been this gradual siphoning of power to uh, national politics, to national foundations, to national nonprofits, to nationally elite uh, universities, uh, both private and public, uh, and consequently, the working class majority of the U.S., if you use education to define working class, that's 70% of the population without a college diploma, uh, they, they really have no elites that they can turn to. They, they can vote every few years for some candidate who has been selected in advance by the donors who agreed to pay for the campaign, uh, you know, or maybe a celebrity that they've seen on TV. But other than that, uh, there's really no button they can push to get any results from the systems. And so consequently, working class people of all races are less likely to vote. When they do vote, 
it's often to cast a protest against the entire system for anti-system candidates like uh, Donald Trump. Is it possible for politics to change in this respect so long as identity politics has gotten a new lease on life and on the left side of the spectrum that comes up in the Democratic Party in a way that's relevant here where the upper middle class on up often support or are tolerant of an identity politics that almost by definition is viewed as an assault on traditional values by many, many people of other social classes. Well, I argue in my book, uh, The New Class War, that identity politics, to some degree, it results from the decline of these intermediate institutions that we had in the uh, mid-20th century, which represented people in the working class you know, from, from a variety of diverse backgrounds. Uh, if you look at the two leading African-American uh, 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 activists in, in the mid-20th century, uh, arguably they were A. Philip Randolph and uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Now, A. Philip Randolph was the founder and head of the Railway Porters Union, uh, classic trade union official. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, was part of uh, uh, the Baptist Church. Uh, and King uh, even discussed going on a biracial national crusade in the 1950s with uh, Billy Graham, who uh, most people don't realize this, uh, insisted on the integration of his uh, revivals from the very early period. So the great thing about trade unions, about churches to some degree, there, there are very racially specialized uh, and ethnically uh, narrow churches, but for the most part, trade unions and churches and even political machines, local political machines, they had to focus on one or a few issues that people of different races and religions had in common, even if they disagreed on other things. So as those institutions have faded, politicians on both the left and the right have figured out, well, we can mobilize people by appealing to these abstract categories they belong to, right? The left tends to uh, push race and gender, the, the right-wing Republicans, very cynically in my view, in the 1990s and 2000s, uh, played up the religious right, appealing to people as it was the religious versus the non-religious. Uh, and in both cases, I think this is a very manipulative system in which it's basically about marketing uh, candidates who are treated as products, uh, and you market them to these predefined customers. Right, who've been defined by either race and gender identity politics or by religious and moral identity politics. Uh, and so the way to get around this is to have more institutions that ordinary working class people belong to uh, that are that are single purpose institutions. Right? So the people could belong people the same person would belong to a trade union with non Catholics, but if that person was Catholic would also be part of the Catholic Church. So, so there's no single identity that any person has. Uh, and the problem with identity politics is it's trying to reduce your various identities, including those you share with all Americans or with large groups of other Americans, to a single identity defined by your race, gender, or religion. One more big picture question, if I might, of your take on American politics, Trump and Sanders, in 2016 to this day represent in effect takeovers 
by independent or sort of alien candidacies that are working within the system as it is through their chosen parties. And if one thinks back earlier in the last decade on the Republican side, the rise of the Tea Party, and on the Democratic side, the Occupy Wall Street moment, one can see that Trump and Sanders were speaking to a lot of the same people and a lot of the same concerns, yet a lot of the people who have these cross-cutting concerns don't recognize themselves and the others. What do you think, how do you respond to that? Well, I, I'm sorry to keep harping on the intermediate institutions, but the great thing about trade unions and churches in the past was that uh, they could exploit the tendency of people to trust people whom they know and who are like them. <clears throat> so Franklin Roosevelt, uh, for much for much of America, was a rather bizarre figure, if you think about it, right? He was this uh, rich kid from the Hudson River Valley with a peculiar uh, northeastern accent, right? And with a, uh, you know, a cigarette in the holder and all of that. Uh, the reason the New Deal prevailed was uh, not simply because he appealed to Americans directly, but because... Uh, the farmers' representatives in Kansas, you know, would, would uh, their, their local member of Congress or the member of the Grange or whatever would explain how the New Deal would help them out. And they would trust this uh, local representative, uh, even if, you know, they didn't necessarily trust this funny New Yorker, you know, they heard on the radio. So, so I think that you can get around that problem uh, if you have local representatives uh, and representatives of, of uh, intermediate groups who can translate the uh, agenda of one or both parties uh, in, in, in a way that uh, people in particular subcultures trust. Let's talk a little bit about your own work uh, in, as a professor, as a teacher. You're creating a new generation of political leaders and engaged citizens at the very prestigious LBJ School what do you see as new and important about 21st century leadership that you're teaching and you're learning from your students and colleagues? Well, I'm very impressed by, by these students. It's a very selective process, and, and they come from all over the country and the world, and, and they're all very impressive individuals uh, to the extent that they take one thing away from my classes. I, I try to persuade them that... Uh, uh, I like to quote my friend uh, Ernesto Cortes, great Mexican-American activist, who, who says, uh, politics is about getting people to do the right thing for the right reasons, and if necessary, getting them to do the right thing for the wrong reasons, which may be their reasons. <laughs> so so my, my whole, uh, the, the point I make in all my classes, whatever the ostensible subject, is that politics is about getting things done. In a democracy, you get things done through coalitions of people who may disagree about everything except the need to get that particular thing done. So you have to approach uh, politics uh, on, on the point of view that people who disagree with you in your own society are not your enemies to be forever defeated and humiliated. Uh, they are your fellow citizens, and you agree on some things and disagree on others, and you need to work with them to uh, achieve the common good, uh, and you don't even have to agree on the reasons for achieving th this particular aspect of the common good. You just have to do it. 
And what that requires you to do is to break out of the social media bubble or, or the artisan bubble and try to at least view the world from the perspective of people who seem wrong to you, right? And can't simply assume that the people who disagree with you are morally evil. You know, you have to put yourself in their place. And from their perspective, they may be trying to do the right things. Just they have a different view of the world, different traditions, different background. So if I can help any students, uh, you know, push against the bubbles that we all live in, then, then I will have succeeded. Referring back again to Franklin Roosevelt, he was often criticized as a traitor to his class. One might say that you, Michael Lind, are a traitor to your class, the managerial elite, and your students, you're basically saying, uh, you're all entering the managerial, the managerial elite, uh, but you'd also be saying to them, keep your values somewhat separate. How do you navigate that? Well, I, I think in terms of elites in general, uh, and my background is mixed. On my mother's side, I, I came from a very well-educated family. My, my father's family was, uh, you know, uh, uh, tenant farmers and cotton pickers in, in uh, Texas and blue-collar workers. So, so I, I had a good view growing up of, of the whole class system. Uh, but I would be perfectly satisfied if the managerial elite to which I belong now uh, would do the right thing, even if it were for purely selfish reasons. Uh, there's a, a saying that Joseph Kennedy, John F. Kennedy's father, who was a wealthy stockbroker in the 1930s, he was asked why, unlike most people in Wall Street, he supported Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal because it led to higher taxes. And he said, I would gladly give up half of my fortune in order to save the other half. Uh, and the point was, that if the alternative is socialist revolution or a fascist dictatorship, you know, then the capitalist elite in its own interest should make some concessions to working class people and, and in those days to the very large farm community. Uh, and that's indeed what, what the elite did in this country. And it's not because they were more moral or more public spirited in the 1950s or 1960s. I don't think they were necessarily, but I think there was a calculation having seen what happened in Russia, in Germany, in Mussolini's Italy, when the legitimate needs of people were not met. Uh, I think there was a bipartisan consensus in this country for about 30 years after World War II that you can't just try to squeeze the most profit out of the lowest wages possible uh, in the U.S. and abroad, uh, that the well-to-do do have some obligations to the country rather than simply pursuing their own personal enrichment and personal career fulfillment. Uh, and so I, I would like to think that possibly under pressure of necessity, we'll see if the pandemic right now has any effects or, or it could be, you know, <clears throat> renewed Cold War with other great powers like China and Russia. But, but uh, if, if you're going to get reform in this country, you have to have a sizable section of the elite has to support it. It can't be done entirely by outsiders or revolts from below. They have to work with people who are part of the existing establishment who see the need for reform. Well, Michael Lind, you've accumulated tremendous experience in political journalism, in co-founding New America, as you referred to. You write extensively and independently. Just as you're teaching 20-year-olds today, 
What would you tell your 21 or 20 year old self if you could? <laughs> uh, save up uh, two months of uh, supplies. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's the main thing I would say. Uh, uh, no, I, I don't know. I think looking back, um, we assumed that uh, the, the that you could get things done more easily by persuasion than by organization. That was certainly my view in my 20s and 30s. It's one of the reasons I went into journalism and into uh, the nonprofit sector and so on. At this point, and, and that was true to a certain extent, I think a few decades ago, at this point, the, the media is so balkanized and people are hived so much into uh, their own little groupthink bubbles uh, and, and also the elite has just accumulated so much power. I, I really, at the age of 57, which is my age now, I would put much more emphasis just on grassroots organization, whether it's economic or political or cultural, uh, than I would have done when I was 37 or 27. I, I just you know, think that uh, power has to balance power. As I say in the new class war, you're always going to have an elite. There just needs to be countervailing power to check its excesses by the, the non-elite majority. Uh, so so uh, there's still room for uh, writers and scholars like me, but I, I think we need organizers as well. That would be the priority in, in the third decade of the 21st century in America. And you have written a lot about history, so I feel compelled to ask you, are there any major matters where you've changed your mind about history or your view of American history? Well, well, my view of American history is that we, we, and this has been my view since my first book in 1995, The Mixed American Nation, is that the system breaks down every half century or so and then is rebuilt into what is essentially a new country. Uh, and we pretend that we're still the same United States uh, under the same federal constitution of 1787 uh, that we were before, but we really were, we're a, new, new, a new system has emerged. So, so in that sense, I haven't changed my views. Uh, what, what I, I have become more pessimistic in the sense that uh, I think that our existing political system is broken in, in both parties, just the, the link between voting and what actually happens in government is, is really seriously degraded. And so that's made me more pessimistic about the idea that, well, if we just have this uh, moral awakening and we sweep the right politicians into power, then we can change things. But that, the main thing that I neglected, I think, in my earlier work, which I emphasize in the new class war, is the need for uh, these, these non-elite organizations like trade unions and religious organizations and local political machines. Uh, I think like most people, I was had a kind of top-down view of history where Lincoln saves the country in the Civil War, Roosevelt saves in the Depression, and at this point, I, I still think they saved the country, but they had a lot of help from uh, lots of, uh, of intermediate organizations. What, what books or other creative works have been particularly influential on you that you would recommend to listeners? Well, uh, uh, one, one of the, it sounds odd, but one of the books that 
influenced me the most uh, uh, when I was young, and it turns out Paul Krugman and others were influenced by this, was, was Isaac Asimov's The Foundation Trilogy. It's this science fiction book, actually. It's about a galactic empire where you have social scientists try to predict its future over you know hundreds of thousands of years. And uh, another book that influenced me greatly when I was young was one called The Next Million Years by Sir Charles Darwin, Darwin's grandson. You find uh, out-of-print uh, editions. And, and to the extent that I have any, any success as a prognosticator, I attribute it to these things. Because if you, if you think about America, not just in terms of the next couple of years, uh, but think about the U.S. and the world in terms of decades and generations and centuries, then A, you're not surprised when you have global depressions, you know, mass terrorist attacks, or pandemics. I mean, you may be surprised by the timing, but that such terrible things happen, you're not surprised by. But also it makes you more optimistic in the sense that, uh, you know, societies uh, periodically suffer and collapse and go through chaos and upheaval, and then they rebuild themselves. Uh, so it's a continuing story. So, uh, so I think... In general, I would recommend history books that give you a long-term perspective uh, of, of things uh, because so much of political debate is structured in this kind of what uh, Gore Vidal, uh, the late writer, called the United States of Amnesia. Yes. Right? If, if you remember that we've been through hard times in the past and, and overcome them, then I think you can be more confident that you, you can try to work to overcome today's present difficulties. And Michael Lind, Claire Booth Luce instructed President Kennedy that everyone, even presidents, are ultimately encapsulated in a single sentence. What would you like your one sentence to be? <laughs> he did his best. Very good, very good. Well, Michael Lind, how can listeners best follow and connect with you in social media? Well, I'm not on social media. I'm not on Twitter. I'm not on uh, Facebook. So uh, they can go to Amazon.com and find uh, uh, my books on, on uh, uh, American history and politics as well as fiction and poetry and children's literature. And uh, they can Google my name and find my recent writings, uh, which appear in diverse uh, sources from the National Interest and uh, the New York Times to... Uh, the Spectator, uh, uh, you know, to uh, very several publications. Well, Michael Lind, I've got to say, I would recommend to everyone your tremendous new book, The New Class War, Saving Democracy from the Managerial Elite. And your other work is also outstanding, particularly for people of an independent bent who don't feel the need to follow a party line. Thank you so much, Michael Lind, for joining us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And thanks to you, our listeners, for being with us. And please rate us highly on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at James Strzok. And connect via our website, Serve to Lead.